Hello, this is Rob Lott. Hey everyone, I'm Leslie Erdelak. And you're listening to Health Affairs This Week, a weekly conversation among health affairs editors about the latest and most interesting topics in health policy. Uh, So Leslie, what's new this week? Yeah, Rob. So as this week comes to a close, many world leaders, including President Biden, are getting ready to depart for a global climate summit that is set to kick off on Sunday in Glasgow, Scotland. It's the United Nations 26th Annual Climate Change Conference, and there's a particular urgency around this year's summit where delegates from more than 190 countries that all signed a treaty to cut back on global emissions are going to come together and debate how to make progress on climate change. So very exciting. Um, But to understand why this year is so important, we actually need to go back to another UN climate conference, to the meeting that happened in Paris in 2015. And that's where the Paris Agreement was hatched. Um, That's where, for the first time in the history of these talks, every country formally agreed to take steps to limit global warming and keep the temperature from rising more than one and a half degrees Celsius due to climate change. And now six years later, this conference is going to be the first major test of the Paris Agreement. Um, We know more about the science of climate change. We know that the targets set in Paris haven't gone far enough to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And so the countries that are taking part in these negotiations over the next two weeks are expected to announce new commitments and targets for helping to cut emissions in half over the next decade. So very exciting, um, also a little worrisome. You know, in other words, we have about 10 years to dramatically reduce emissions before we cross that threshold that would make it almost impossible to walk back or undo um, or, or essentially recover from global warming. And every additional tenth of a degree of warming beyond that 1.5 degrees um, takes a really serious toll on people's health, right? Every fraction of a degree seems to matter. Yeah. So that's the the question, right, is how exactly does climate change affect health? And uh, to be a little snarky with my answer, I might say, how doesn't it, right? Um, Because the truth is there's no one pathway from climate change to people's health. Um, There are countless ways that climate change affects our health, and really none of those pathways are very pretty. Um, So just to, to provide maybe a few examples, We know, uh, right, that greenhouse gas emissions lead to things like rising temperatures, sea level rise, warming oceans, and these things in turn cause a whole series of events that are, to put it mildly, dangerous, Um, right? So I'm talking about severe storms, uh, more intense hurricanes, flooding, drought, um, and related to drought fires. And now, obviously, these things are bad for your health in a direct way, right? If you drown in a flood or can't escape a terrible fire or you're an elderly person in a, a extreme heat event um, and, or if you get an insect-borne disease from an insect that's suddenly 
you know, uh, forced into your region because of uh, climate change, these things have a direct impact on your health. But then you've got this whole additional cascade of events that really each of the original bad things sets into motion a whole additional bad things. And so, for example, the storm might disrupt your community's access to safe drinking water or functional wastewater system, and that's bad for your health. Or the floods might make it harder to get to the hospital if you have a heart attack. Or uh, power outages might make it hard for um, you to operate your dialysis machine. And the fires might undermine your region's air quality, which could exacerbate your asthma and other respiratory diseases for years to come. So um, I'm, I'm sounding like a bit of a pessimist, but I think the important thing to note is that the ripple effects of these pretty serious events can have dramatic health consequences in many, many different ways. And so I guess my question is, if we're sort of really beginning to wrap our head around, heads around these these pathways, what's what do we do about it? What what now? Yeah, you're right. We know so much more today about how climate change affects our health, and I don't think we can lose sight of that in the run up to this conference. Um, which, by the way, uh, if you think of yourself as a pessimist, you're in good company because a lot of people are calling this conference the world's last best chance to solve the climate crisis. But in terms of what we know about how climate change affects health, I think there's this realization that the climate crisis really could sort of dismantle decades of progress and all of these advancements that we've made in global health um, in particular and really widen these inequalities that I think have really only become more pronounced during the pandemic. You know, the global health community, again, has been really adamant about making sure that health and social justice are at the center of these UN climate negotiations. And so, yeah, shifting to the question, you know, what are we going to do? I, I think that there needs to be a little bit of a paradigm shift, um, you know, since so few countries under the Paris Agreement have actually agreed to quantify or track um, some of the health benefits that could result from different kinds of climate mitigation policies. Um, so historically, you know, health has not really been a major driver of the decisions that we make with respect to climate change. So I'll note that the World Health Organization just issued a report um, in the days leading up to this conference with 10 recommendations for making health a more intentional part of the international climate agenda. And I think the goal is that climate-related investments in the health sector and the public health community become one of those common objectives moving forward. Nice. Okay. So I like that 10 specific recommendations. Yeah. That gives me something I can hold on to, something I can maybe do. Um, uh, say a little more about those recommendations. Um, what, what exactly are they and, and kind of how do they chart the path forward? Well, there are two ideas in this report that I think are really important. And here at the journal, we've actually published some studies that are in line with these recommendations. And the first one is about building climate resilient and environmentally sustainable health systems and facilities. 
I helped edit the December 2020 issue of Health Affairs on climate and health. And I think a real kind of aha moment for me was understanding that, yeah, the climate crisis puts an enormous strain on our health systems in terms of how they operate and their capacity to care for people. You know, we saw how quickly hospitals became overburdened uh, with COVID patients. So you know, the risks and demands associated with climate change are very similar. But at the same time, it is just shocking um, how much health systems themselves actually contribute to climate change through their greenhouse gas and carbon emissions. And so the point is that the health sector is actually a major player here, and there needs to be a more concerted push toward building low-carbon sustainable hospitals and healthcare facilities. Um, So there's a great paper from our December issue on transforming the medical device industry that we'll put in the show notes. And then the other recommendation in this report from the WHO has to do with mobilizing and supporting the public health community on climate actions. And it speaks to what we know and definitely what we've observed over the course of the pandemic too, which is that public health and healthcare professionals are really these trusted communicators who are embedded in local communities. And so in the context of climate change, this makes them important advocates who can really engage, you know, who represent communities um, most affected and most at risk. But obviously, you know, protecting people's health from climate change requires commitment and leadership from every sector, not just health. And, you know, I think that's really the overarching message that comes from this report. Yeah, Leslie, I'm glad you mentioned uh, leadership um, that obviously evokes the challenges we're facing around COVID, especially when it comes to the field of public health. Uh, There was a really interesting article in The Atlantic this week from reporter Ed Young. It's titled How Public Health Took Part in Its Own Downfall. And I will attempt to summarize it briefly here. There's no way I can do it justice and Listeners should definitely check it out directly. We'll put a link in the show notes. But essentially, he argues that 100 years ago, public health was a field. It it was tremendously powerful because it was largely built around large coalitions and because it wasn't shy about addressing broad social issues like poverty and hunger. I'm thinking about Jane Addams at Whole House here in Chicago and Lillian Wall at the Henry Street Settlement. Um, these are folks who were really focusing on the the deep, deep social determinants of people's health challenges. But then you see with the rise of germ theory and rapid improvements in medical technology, new medical treatments, suddenly public health became a lot more focused on treating the individual and curing discrete disease and spending time in the laboratory focusing on the science. And don't get me wrong, those things like had a tremendous impact on improving health and extending life expectancy over the last 50 years. But along the way, the article suggests it seems that the field has lost some of its authority and some of its clout really to speak about broader issues and the deeper challenges that we face as a community, as a society. Yeah. And there's a quote in that piece um, that that I really love. And so I'm going to read it. Chronically overstretched workers who can barely deal with STDs or opioid addiction can't be expected to tackle poverty and racism, but they don't have to. 
What if instead we thought of the Black Lives Matter movement as a public health movement, the American Rescue Plan as a public health bill, or decarceration as a public health goal? So I love that. And I think, you know, why why shouldn't climate change be on that list? Shouldn't coming to agreement on measures to address climate change also be a public health goal? By the same token, I, you know, I think there's just a critical need to really develop and cultivate new knowledge and skill sets related to climate change among health professionals, you know, including those in public health. There's another paper that we did, sort of a thought piece from our climate issue on climate and health literacy that argues for conceptualizing climate change as, you know, a human health, as a public health issue. Um, so that's that's worth a read, too. Great. Yeah, that was um, a, a great uh, theme issue that you helped pull together, Leslie. And it's interesting how it continues to resurface, whether it's in our conversations about the public health field confronting COVID, whether it's sort of as a follow-up to the to the upcoming UN summit, it continues to uh, to serve uh, serve the conversation, and um, I'm sure we will continue coming back to it um, uh, for months and and years to come. Uh, maybe that's a good place for us to wrap up for now, um, Leslie. This was a, a great conversation, and I'm looking forward to seeing what comes out of the uh, the big UN conference this weekend. Yeah, plenty to watch. Plenty to watch. All right. Well, to our listeners, thanks for tuning in. Please uh, recommend uh, the podcast to a friend or leave a review. And of course, tune in next week. Take care, Leslie. All right. Thanks, Rob. See you next week. Bye.